Welcome to the Compliance Expert Radio Show, your source for the latest information on corporate governance, internal audit, stocks and risk management services, with in-depth interviews, discussions and insights from leading experts. Hosted by Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum. This is the Compliance Expert Radio Show. And now, here is your host, Sonia Luna. Hi, I'm Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, a GRC and compliance consulting firm headquartered in sunny Los Angeles, California. I'm also a speaker and writer on topics like corporate governance, COSO 2013, ERM, SOX 404, and quality assessment reviews, and all those wonderful related topics. My guest today is Chief Ethics Officer of HealthNet, Bruce Anderson, who has over 20 years of experience in compliance and healthcare. And as many of you know, HealthNet is one of the largest healthcare providers in the U.S. and headquartered in California. Bruce directs Medicare corporate compliance and ethics programs. He oversees the initiatives related to compliance with federal laws and the fun stuff of corporate compliance in terms of the daily operations and compliance training and education. Bruce holds a master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania and several certifications in the healthcare field, including HIPAA privacy. Bruce is a certified compliance and ethics professional, and we are super lucky to have him. Welcome, Bruce. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I'm excited. I know we met um, actually back in D.C., and and I'm really excited to have you on our show today to discuss um, what some people would call an evergreen topic, but I think it's a timely topic of ethics. And um, we've listened to our audience. I asked actually a question on Twitter, and we received some great questions from our follower followers. So I wanted to get started um, with some of those questions. So what is the most effective way an organization can gather and use data to predict compliance risks? So this is a really great question, and it hits to the core of what compliance and ethics professionals do. So you're really looking at the effectiveness here, the efficiency of your program. It's our gold standard, and you know, it's actually pretty hard to ascertain. But I have a model that I use, so I'd like to share that with you and your listeners. Um, It'll take a few minutes, but I think it's worth it. Um, So first of all, let's define our realm of compliance activities. So for this discussion, I'd like to limit our focus to compliance with the laws and regulations that govern the business you're in. So let's say if you're a doctor's office, it would be the laws pertaining to delivery of medical services to patients. Or if you operate a mine, you know, it would be the laws and regulations for mining. So outside of the scope just for this discussion is compliance with labor laws, with tax compliance, for example, or workplace safety. All those are foundational. They're baseline for every employer, for all businesses. But right now, let's just focus on the laws and regulations that govern the products and services that you sell. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. Great. So first, we need to build a foundation. So I'm a very visual person, so I like to think of it as a map. So build a complete map of all of your legal and regulatory requirements, right? So look at laws, look at statutes, 
at the federal level, the state level, the local level. And then once you've mapped that out, then approach litigation for your industry. Look at corporate integrity agreements. Look at deferred prosecution agreements. Those are great ways to know what regulators are focused on. If they're finding problems with competitors or other businesses, they're probably going to ask you those kinds of questions, so you need to be prepared. So you can map out all of these different aspects of you know, what your program should be addressing. And then once you've done that, then you can trace your activities. So, you know, what are you doing to meet each of those requirements? And again, map those out in a way that, you know, you can follow a line straight from the requirement to what it is that you are doing about it. Then after that, I like to develop metrics. So you're going to use metrics to track, trend, and report on regular intervals. So you'll see how are, how are our operations doing on each of these key measures, right? So let's say, using an example, if you're in the doctor's office, for new patients, you need to provide them with access to your privacy policies. So you could develop a metric that measures this, right? So you have a signed form. You could audit that against your roster of new patients, for example, and say, well, did I hit 100%? If not, why not? And then drive to you know, how you can get there. Um, and you could even go further with like a post-engagement survey um, you know, after the patient has left the office and ask them questions related to this so you could kind of understand a little bit more around the process. So I recommend metrics for absolutely everything, right? So I think in business school, in the first hour, they teach, um, you know, you can only manage what you measure, right? So we mm -hmm. have to measure, we have to have metrics so that we can understand what's going on. But also regulators will ask you for these, right? So the day will come when a regulator reaches out and says, hey, I need to know what's going on in this area. And if you start developing metrics at that point, you're really in trouble, right? Because they expect that we are doing this work continually, that we're monitoring, so that um, when they come in and ask for information, we're able to give it to them. And, you know, actually, once I had a 45-minute turnaround time from a regulator for data that I didn't necessarily have at my fingertips, and, yeah, it was a stress test. She wanted to see, well, how are we doing, right? And so mm -hmm. I had 45 minutes to give her a report, and I did my best in 45 minutes, and then I gave her a better report, like in four hours, right? But um, sometimes, wow. sometimes they do stress tests too. Yep, so you have to be ready for it. Okay, so a couple more steps to get to effectiveness, and we're going to get to the answer the question soon. I'm just building up to it. So we have all these metrics, and we're going to need to now analyze them to understand what's going on, and in particular, look at outliers. Right? So with an outlier, drive down to your single root cause for the variance. And then for all of your outliers, so the model I use, we conduct a risk assessment. Right? So the model that I use looks at a number of areas or aspects of the risk. Right? So we look at the likelihood of occurrence. So if it's an outlier in a metric, it, mean it, did, it means it did occur, right? <laughs> the magnitude of the risk. So usually this is in dollars or maybe reputational risk. How is the mm -hmm. risk mitigated by management controls, right? Is mm -hmm. the risk increasing? Is it decreasing? Is it staying the same? And then finally, looking at the velocity of the risk. How fast is it increasing, for example? Mm -hmm. So based on all that, then, we ask people to, to provide us with a management action plan, or sometimes it's called a corrective action plan, and then we report on those in our governance meetings. 
So if you have a big mm-hmm. company, it may be part of a separate compliance committee. If you're a smaller organization, it may be just meetings with your CEO or with your board or audit committee, just depending on what your structure is. So in summary, I think the way you predict your risks are know your compliance requirements, constantly monitor operations, identify your outliers, listen to tips, then conduct a risk assessment on every outlier or tip, drive to management action plans, right, and rinse and repeat. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a very um, – the the beginning part of the process is more of a macro view, right, that map that you were describing and putting together – Okay, what's really truly in scope, um, and then aligning, as you said, those activities that are um, relevant to meeting um, that in scope requirement, and then following through on any outliers and coming up with a, a metric system that says these outliers um, are anomalies. We need to get to the bottom of it, and therefore, um, we have a either a management action plan or a cap report, a corrective action plan. But regardless. It sets the tone. I mean, that's what I'm kind of getting the feeling is, you know, people respect what you inspect. And if they find out you're inspecting on these anomalies, they know that by default that even though it's an outlier activity or an issue, um, especially when you have subsidiaries or remote locations, they know they're going to get called on it versus I wonder if I'm going to get called on it and, and, you know, provide a response to this. Uh, incident, they know it's going to happen, and it actually sets the tone for the entire organization, at, especially at the subsidiary level. Um, and I think it's extremely comprehensive what you're describing. And and I wanted to get into a different kind of topic because compliance is seen, seems sometimes like a cost center, right? It's that vacuum of the budget that goes towards we only do it because, you know, the federal law requires it or the state law requires it, et cetera. But there's got to be more to that. Um, are, are there any competitive advantages, Bruce, that you've seen in an, you know, in an organization that can get, you know, when you're implementing it and, and you get, like, let's say the best of breed ethics program, are there really any competitive advantages that you've seen in practice? You know, I think there are a number of competitive uh, advantages, and it's actually a really interesting dynamic and an interesting process and something I just love, which is probably why I do it, right, because it's so interesting to me. But I think um, there are a number of them. But let me start with just one word, which is knowledge. And that probably sounds counterintuitive. Like we all think, yeah, I know what my business is about, right? So why do I need more knowledge? But in organizations, we always need people to be bringing information and knowledge forward to us. And people won't do that unless a couple of things are in place, right? So in your best of breed program, a couple of things. So one is proper incentives need to be in place. The next Mm -hmm. is there needs to be a firm policy um, of no retaliation for reports in good faith. And actually, most people are afraid of the social retaliation and not the professional retaliation. And the third is the employee knows that somebody's going to do something about their report, right? They bring something forward, it means something, and, you know, it'll be investigated and there'll be some kind of an outcome based on that. So when you have that dynamic, so people are pulling, you know, are pushing information up in up the chain, basically, then you're able to get closer to an objective truth that you can base your decisions on. And in essence, it's kind of just giving you more reality, even if it's unvarnished or contradictory or, 
you know, it may be ambiguous, right, because life is like that, right? But mm-hmm. that way we've got more information that we can actually work with and make better decisions. And then people are more likely to follow, you know, follow and support, be engaged, because they participated in helping you have a more complete, if not more complex, understanding of the environment. So I think by having that deep knowledge that hits closer to truth um, increases the trust both ways, right? So management is trusting the information, trusting people to bring forward information. And it may not always be great information. It may not always be something that's accurate or correct, but at least they're bringing it forward so you can evaluate that, have the opportunity to do that. And also another advantage is it helps you to detect problems early and prevent bigger problems. So we think of that old saying that every big problem was once a small problem. If you've got a robust program where people are engaged and they're bringing information forward, then you have an app, you know, opportunity to like address something before it becomes a really big problem, right? So that's something mm-hmm. I know as a manager I always want, like, hey, let's deal with it early on, right, and not when it's, um, you know, a big problem. <clears throat> and then I think most importantly is um, an advantage of a best-of-breed ethics program is a focus on optimal profits. So making a point here, I'm underscoring optimal in the air here, right? Optimal profits, not maximum profits, because when people pursue a goal of maximum profits, it means they're going to get profit by any mean that they can, right? Mm-hmm. And eventually that's going to catch up with you, right? Especially today in our very interconnected world, right? We're going to find out somebody is going to do something through deceit or outright um, you know, misinformation, and there'll be a backlash against that. But mm-hmm. for all of us to be successful, and you know, as we're more interconnected, it's you know we know what makes a vendor profitable. We know what makes a customer want to come to us, and that they, you know, it's a good deal for everybody. So it's optimal profits for everyone. So I think at the very end, that's what your best of breed ethics program can produce for you. Yeah, it seems like uh, you know that word knowledge, like you said. I mean, knowledge is power, and and facilitating the process or having not only the process but a culture of that um, avenue. That look, you know, you're safe here, and and we're going to provide uh, every means possible that would allow a person to provide, in, like you said, in good faith, um, bring those issues up. Um, and also, I believe that that some some of the best of breed type of programs have uh, continuous training, right? And some of those training is live, it's participative, it's very collaborative, and it actually allows those smaller problems to be discussed in those collaborative live training sessions because everybody in the room can hear it, everybody can understand what the policy or the procedures are within the organization, or um, they understand that you know, the management team really cares about um, driving down these small problems because they can elevate to a larger problem that, you know, again, if people, you know, will realize that um, had problems been caught earlier in the process, uh, it usually costs less, um, and not only in terms of time, but also money and other resources to address them. Um, and, and you having been in charge of ethics, um, you know, talking about, you know, small problems and then bigger problems and getting to the root cause very quickly. 
you know, you are in charge of this major organization in terms of ethics, and I'm, I'm sure, I'm absolutely positive you had to deal with very um, uncomfortable situations. Uh, these are discussions that a lot of us don't, you know, wake up in the morning going, gee, I can't wait to have that discussion with so-and-so. Can you share with our listeners um, some of the key principles you take into a meeting right before having that difficult conversation? Sure, absolutely. And um, you're right. Um, there have been some very challenging conversations that you know I need to have to help move the organization forward. I would say I usually go in with a very fact-based approach and view myself as someone who is there to just understand kind of the situation, the dynamic, what happened, what didn't happen, and to be as approachable as possible um, so that people, you know, want to open up, hopefully, but that doesn't always happen, as you can imagine. Um, Mm -hmm. But to approach it with that kind of, hey, we're just here to you know, figure out what happened, and, you know, I just need to ask you some questions to understand better. A few things I have learned. One is that um, in these types of discussions and when I conduct an investigation, usually I come up with an idea of where we're going to end up, and we always end up someplace else, right? So, mm-hmm. that's, so I have to be humble going in, right? I have to kind of check my own bias and hypotheses at the door. Um, so I've learned that. Um, and also learning that truth evolves. So I'd love to get to some final objective truth. This is what really happened. But, um, you know, as I'm talking with people, sometimes, you know, people disagree between the facts, right? They don't have the same perspective or even recollection of the facts. Memories are fallible, right? Psychologists tell us that all the time. So the further the distance is between when I speak with somebody and an event occurred, the less likely that everybody's going to have the same kind of memory of it. So that makes it hard to like, oh, what really did happen, right? But usually Mm -hmm. I can get to a resting point where I can make a decision and, you know, develop a recommendation for a path forward. Um, And I think the last piece is understanding that, this is the empathy piece for me, understanding that at the time people did things for a reason that made sense to them at that time. Mm -hmm. That doesn't excuse it, doesn't make it right, right? But still helps me to kind of look from their perspective like, wow, how did this make sense? And, you know, I have a case where an employee thought she was helping out someone, a very highly skilled employee who was struggling with a computer program. So she's actually doing things on behalf of this more highly skilled employee. And eventually that became a problem, right? And she really in her heart of hearts thought that she was helping the company because that way the other employee could do what she was good at and she could do what she was better at, right? Even though it involved sharing passwords and stuff like that they shouldn't have been doing, right? But I know she really felt she was doing the right thing and we had to kind of educate her. I needed to spend some time to help her understand why that wasn't the right action and how we could kind of help everybody by doing things you know, according to the the way that we had mapped out to do them. So, um, so in essence, it's coming in with some empathy, looking for facts, understanding that truth is going to evolve through this process until we get to a point that will be a resting point, and then educating people around, you know, what do we need to do differently so that we protect themselves and the company. And actually, in that situation, she didn't understand how the policies actually protected her because she kind of got in the hot water, right? So, right. You know, it's very interesting. 
it's it's like um you know when you get hired there's like a stack full of documents you sign and you agree that you acknowledge them you've read them you've understood them okay Six months down the road, I can't remember what I had, you know, for breakfast six months ago, <laughs> much less those <laughs> right, right. policies and procedures. And if there are good policies and procedures and there's a good culture, they actually do get updated, right? So it's not like yep. it's a an archival uh, type of policy and nothing changes on it. Therefore, you know, the constant training and education and, and the communication of these policies is actually one of the best breed um, items. And it's interesting that you're talking about, you know, sharing passwords um, a lot of what's coming to light in terms of some of the um, cybersecurities and some of these other attacks or these these IT issues, um, people fail to realize that, that some of it's actually internal policies that were not kept up mm-hmm. um, in terms right. of who should have been granted access, how passwords were set up originally. And so now it's coming you know, on these headlines, you know, it first started with, um, you know, like Home Depot, Target, et cetera. But now we're just seeing more and more of it. And, I, and I'm and i starting to see more of what these uncomfortable discussions about IT policies because the boards are becoming very interested in this, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. once somebody's inside the organization, what's stopping them? What barriers of entry are, is 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 really in place? Some of it is, you know, automated, the system itself. But the other is we're really hoping people are abiding by the policy and they're not overriding it. And we've had uncomfortable discussions about um, IT policies where um, people who had the power to change passwords did so on their own behalf, thinking it was okay to help the company out because it just would have been they, – they, they did it faster. Does right. that make sense? And yeah. we, we, we overrode it because something needed to be done. It wasn't a real, a real emergency, but in their eyes, they thought it was an emergency. They were the fastest person to do it, and they just thought, we'll just do it right now for right. the benefit of the company. Right. And there may have been an incentive, for example, for them to meet a turnaround time or a deadline, and they wanted to do good, right, by meeting that? Right. 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 Yeah, and and it's a difficult conversation, but it's also, um, you know, I I always present it to the board in the sense of, well, how would that look like if it showed up on the paper, right? I I mean, if if you guys feel like it's appropriate, then, you know, maybe you need to change your policy. Okay, these are the exceptions to the rules because, hey, if it got to the headlines, every one of you would be happy about it. It's not a big deal. But if it does get to the headlines and you're very uncomfortable, then – you know, maybe the turnaround time isn't so important. It's having the right people in the process, and maybe it might take a little bit longer to address the issue, but at least we all know that there were checks and balances in the process. Mm-hmm. Right, the process um, worked. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I also understand um, you you share a passion that I do, which is, which is speaking and public speaking and sharing of knowledge. So um, I know you're up for a couple of conferences, one in October and November of this year, 2015, can you just share a little bit about, you know, the conference and also maybe um, topic and then how to register for these things? Oh, I'd be happy to. The first one is the 14th Annual Compliance and Ethics Conference that will be in Las Vegas in October. And I'm presenting on a film festival that we did last year. We invited our employees and our contractors to submit up to a two-minute film. on, And our theme was the good, the bad, and the ugly 
And these were fictional films, of course, and they were the good was the category of people doing the right thing, the bad was the category of things doing people doing things they shouldn't, and the ugly in our industry is fraud, waste, and abuse. So films that were about fraud, waste, and abuse, and it was highly successful. We had great engagement, very creative films were submitted. So we're going to present everything, the whole project. We're going to give everybody the festival in a box. They can just leave from there, go to their own company, change the names. And boom, off they go. They can do their own um, film festival. So um, that will be at the um, Compliance and Ethics Conference. Their website is www.complianceethicsinstitute.org. That's all one word, just the way those words are spelled, run together. Then in November, I'll be presenting at the General Counsel's Forum on Internal Investigations and Corporate Compliance. There I will be speaking on ethics investigations, and I have a model that I use for my highest level investigations. I'll be presenting that. That conference is sponsored by Financial Research Associates, and their website is www.frallc.com. So that's F as in Frank. R's and Richard, A is and Albert, L's and Lori, L's and Lori, C is and Charlie.com. Fantastic. Now, those sound like great conferences, especially that movie. And what a great, uh, I would say, gift um, you're providing others to share, um, you know, that little movie and tidbit. And then the second is, you got to love attorneys, you know, love them or hate them. But, some, you know, we don't, I personally have one in the family, so I got to love them. Um, you know, they deal with compliance on a, on a different angle, talk about different viewpoints. And it's great that you're sharing in your most complicated, you know, the top notch investigations because it gives a different spin because you're not from that quote legal background, which I've met plenty of ethics uh, officers with that legal. You're more on the operational side, uh, dissecting side, you know, I call it the tried and true kind of audit side. Um, and, and I think there's a lot to offer in that conference when you're speaking for those, again, those deeper dive, um, high-profile high type of investigations in that framework that, that uh, you're going to share. Um, and talking about sharing and stories, um, I really believe everybody's got a great story about how they got into the compliance arena. Um, can you share your story to our listeners? You know, what drew you to your current compliance position? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I kind of, I grew into it organically. I was doing work for one of our subsidiaries where I was the main contact with all of our regulators, and I found that I just really liked it. I worked on um, market conduct exams. I worked on financial exams. I was the person that wove together the auditors with our operations, with the organization. I like that higher level, kind of taking a, you know, kind of pulling the camera back and looking at the whole picture, right? I really enjoyed that. I was good at it. So in 2010, when the Affordable Care Act was signed by President Obama, I was handpicked to implement the initial provisions. So in six months, we had to quickly do some things very differently than we'd done before. And so I was able to marshal the organization together to make those changes and get them ready. It was all due by September 23rd of 2010. So we worked really hard to make and exceed that deadline, and that went very well. During that period, our chief ethics officer retired. So I raised my hand and said, oh, I'd really like to do that. And I was then awarded the job. And when I shared that with friends and colleagues, everybody said, you know, that's a really good fit for you. And I think they're right. It's nice to have the validation, but um, 
I really do like it. It's it's an incredible role. I get to see the enterprise from this broad perspective to see how everything fits together. I'm, I'm more of a generalist than a specialist. So um, it's just been a really good fit for me. No, they're lucky to have you, Bruce. Uh, oh, and I, you. I know you and I, yeah, we've talked at length about it. Um, you're definitely one of the uh, truer um, visionaries. I mean, you can take something, at, like you said, the camera lens and take it way back but then you know the details uh, to move that camera forward. Um, and when we spoke, when we were in D.C., I, I found it a pleasure kind of picking your brain and kind of seeing how you see things in terms of the ethics program. So I know you're going to do a top-notch job at the conference and, and of course, with HealthNet. Um, this, I just want to tell our listeners that I, I really love this interview, uh, Bruce, and, and I really am confident our listeners gained a lot of value uh, about this you know, business ethics and compliance risks. Um, I want to tell our listeners, don't forget to register for Bruce's upcoming conference. What well, We're going to have links on our website at avivaspectrum.com. And again, thank you, Bruce, for being on our radio show today. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Sonia. Well, this is Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, signing off. <laughs> 